Welcome to the Burn Hickory Podcast, where you can listen to our sermons each week. Our mission is to reach everyone around us with the hope of Christ. And our goal is that you'll find a place where you can learn, grow, live, and thrive in a faith family. Now let's get ready to dig into Scripture and see what God has for us today. Well, good morning, church. Before we jump into this morning's message, I feel like I need to publicly respond to some of your snippy social media comments to me this week. Um, on Tuesday, yes, I did. I was the uh, chaplain for the day at the U.S. or the uh, Georgia Senate, and yes, I do own a suit. Thank you very much. Uh, I just feel like I needed to say. Not only do I have one suit, I have multiple suits, and if you like to see them, I can back it up with proof. And if I have a suit on and on your behalf, either it's a very good day for you or a very bad day for you. Uh, either you're married or you're buried, uh, one or the other in my life. So I just felt like I needed to get that off my chest and confess uh, my heart to you guys this week. But no joke, uh, would you continue to pray? Uh, for our leaders. Continue to pray for our local leaders, our state leaders, our national leaders. There are some things on the docket right now with identity, with created, uh, who we were created to be that are incredibly heavy things uh, that we have a responsibility uh, to the Lord to bring them up and to lead, uh, to leave some prayers on that behalf. Well, do you want to jump into the message? Welcome to week five in the series. You just saw the promo for on the disciples, on the 12 that changed the world. And if you've been traveling this journey with us, you'll know that we've made the point every week to look through the lens at these guys to say that they were just ordinary men. We're looking at the original disciples that walked with Jesus, that talked with Jesus, that learned from Jesus, that spent just about every waking moment in that period of time with Jesus. And we've said that they're just like you. They're just like me. They don't have any superpowers. They weren't raised and matured into this process. They were ordinary people just like me. And they were called just like you by Jesus into a relationship with him. And then obviously called into being a disciple making disciple. And I'm hoping that you're just feeling the theme of this because I want us to be able to look into ourselves and our lives and say that the same power that they have is the power that's available to us. It's the power we just sang about. It's the power that's available from Christ. We've been walking through some of the specific men in this group. We don't have time for all of them, but we've looked at a couple. And we started with the Apostle Philip, the administrator of the group. And we said that he would just look at us at some point in our faith and say, look, you don't have have to have all the answers to step out in faith. In fact, you can't have all the answers and still call it faith. But yet some of us, we operate in the semi-faith zone and we say that if I don't have the answers, if I don't know the outcome, that I would never take this step for Jesus. Well, Philip would go, look, you can check all the boxes you want, but sometimes faith just doesn't make sense and we're asked to just be obedient and we're asked to submit to him in some things in our lives. We moved from him to the Apostle John, and we said the Apostle John would look at us as an elder statesman and, and just say, look, it's all about the balance. It's about the balance of never backing down from absolute truth on this side, but on this side, always back up the truth with absolute love towards other people. 
And John could say this to us because John lived this in his life. He watched this pendulum swing one side and to the other. And John would just want us to bear the warning of, look, don't be a universalist heretic on one side. Obviously, we are about the word of God. We will not back down from the word of God. But he also said, don't be a jerk on this side and just love people. Back it up with the love of people. Last week we moved in from John into the Apostle Peter. And the Apostle Peter, kind of the fan favorite of the group, because most of us can relate to his mouth that is in the shape of his foot. And that's where a lot of ours kind of stays. We know that a lot of times when he spoke, he would have to, he would have to kind of back it up with, all right, Lord, sorry about that. And he gave us this message last week that I hope you took this week. And, and that is that our failures are not fatal. They're not fatal if we'll just continue to fall towards Jesus. And we looked into his story and we watched his story of, of how he failed. But yet later on, Jesus looked at him with the same look that he looks at us and says, Hey, look, you're forgiven. And I hope you walked this week in that forgiveness that's available to you and not allowed yourself to be burdened down from a past failure. Well, this week we're going to step into another life of one of the disciples. And in the last two weeks, we've looked at two different guys that really a lot of books have been written about. There's a lot of studies on. There's a lot of kind of journeying through a lot of their lives. And we feel like we have a really good grasp on who those guys are. This morning, we're going to look at a guy that, that's a little bit different. And, and, and actually, this guy is, is a little lesser known than those disciples. And he, in a lot of ways, gets a bad rap. This morning's disciple we're going to look at and kind of take some things from his life is, is the Apostle Thomas. It's the Apostle Thomas this morning. But, but I want you to know this morning that we're going to look at Thomas's faith. And actually we're going to look at his heart that gave him faith. And, and I want you to know that Thomas is a little bit different than some of the other disciples that we've been talking about. You see, Thomas, we don't know a lot about his lineage. We don't know a lot about his history. We don't know a lot about his calling. In fact, we don't even get to see Thomas's calling uh, when Jesus called him to be a disciple. We just get to see that one day his name just popped up on Jesus's list after he went and prayed and identified it. But we do know that Thomas deeply loved Jesus. And we have to go a little bit deeper to find out about Thomas. In fact, we see Thomas over in Luke chapter 21. We see him post-resurrection. He's in the boat with these other disciples. They go back to knowing, they go back to doing what they know best, right? They go back to fishing after the crucifixion. And we see Thomas as one of those disciples. So you could, I mean, this is just an assumption, but you could make the assumption that he was a fisherman like a lot of the other disciples. Or you could even make the assumption that Thomas was a carpenter because to some of the early church writers. Some of the early church writers would put the symbol by Thomas's name sometimes that almost looked like a, what would commonly be known now as a framing square or a ruler. So maybe he was a carpenter. Maybe he was a fisherman. We don't really know what Thomas was, but we do know that Thomas loved Jesus. He loved Jesus. But we can also say, it's fair to say this about Thomas, just by looking at the Bible, 
We can say that Thomas loved Jesus, but, but the reality is, is that Thomas was kind of like one of your friends. Do you have that friend that is the, the glass half empty friend? Uh, do you know who this is? Don't be punching your spouse right now. This is not the time, but do you have that friend that in your life that no matter what comes up, no matter what happens, they're always the glass half empty or they're the pessimist of the group. They would call themselves a realist, but we know that's not true. They're just a pessimist. They're just a glass half empty person. Well, that's who Thomas was. We can almost define Thomas, maybe bring it into a little bit more of a light for some of you, as the, as the Eeyore of Winnie the Pooh, right? Of the disciples. He's, he's kind of the always the, well, I don't know about that. He's always the one that kind of gives off this air of, well, maybe, but it's fair to say about Thomas, listen, he loved Jesus. He loved Jesus. You see, Thomas probably didn't get the best of starts. In fact, little known fact, but the word Thomas, the word Thomas, I know some of you are like, ah, we don't care about words, but you'll like this one. The word Thomas is actually from an Aramaic word that literally just means twin. It just means twin. It is not a proper name, all right? I want you just to feel this. Thomas is not a name. It is just the word twin. In fact, you'll also notice if you've, if you've been studying the Bible a lot, Thomas is also known as Didymus. He's known as Didymus. You'll see this in quotes all over the Bible. And here's what Didymus means. Didymus is the Greek word for twin. You got it right. So, so go with me on this just for a minute. Thomas didn't even have a real name. He didn't even have a real name. Let me tell you how I, we know this. We can find this in history. I love this this week. When someone would have twins in first century Palestine, look, they didn't get to go to the doctor. There was no sonograms. There was nothing like that available. The reality is they did not know that they were having twins. Imagine this. Some of you are like, well, I know how that was. I did it. All right. Imagine this. You go, you have your baby, and all of a sudden, everybody's celebrating, but it ain't over, all right? Baby number two comes out, and here's what the family is dealing with at this moment. They didn't know they were having twins. So the first baby would come out, they would present this baby, they would name this baby. Here is, I don't know, pick a name, Sue, all right? Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. But if you had a twin, the problem was you didn't have a name for the second baby, you didn't have a name. So the second baby would come and they would just merely name the other baby Thomas. They would name this other baby Thomas. Now, for the most part, that was just a temporary name. It was a temporary name until they came up with a name that was suitable, that was for family, that was for something, but not for poor Thomas. Poor Thomas's parents gave up on him so early in life, they never even gave this poor guy a name. So he was just known as, hey, twin. Hey, twin, come here. Hey, Sue's brother, come here. Hey, John's brother, we don't really know, but we know that he was the second twin, and Thomas never got a name, so it's no wonder he's the Eeyore, right? He didn't even have a good start. So we see, when we're looking at Thomas's life, we see that he's a little intense. He's got a little baggage to carry, right, from early on in life. Hey, twin, let's go do this. So anytime you read the word Thomas from now on, just look at it as, hey, twin, so Thomas, I love this guy because, because it's kind of sad that he didn't get a real name, but it also shows us that, man, it's, you can bounce back from things. 
We don't find Thomas in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, except for just the mentioning of the disciples. That, that, that's all we see him in. But, but the reality is, is John, in John's gospel, gives us a pretty clear glimpse of who Thomas is, on how Thomas's life worked, on what Thomas's faith looks like. But before we get to that, though, I need to clear something up. Because if you're like me, and you grew up in church, if you're like me, you've been maybe studying the Bible for a long time, you've been reading, you've been hearing people like me for a long time. Anytime you hear the word Thomas from the Bible, there is one thing that sticks out in your mind, and that's Thomas's nickname, right? Because Thomas, what have you heard your whole life? Thomas was a doubting Thomas. He was a doubting Thomas. So now we've got a guy with no name that we have successfully judged for 2,000 years. For 2,000 years, authors and teachers and preachers and writers have judged and railed on this poor guy, Thomas. But here's what I would say. Why don't we do this for everybody? I mean, think about the Bible just for a minute. What about King David? I mean, what about David? Half the Psalms are David doubting his relationship with God, but yet we still call him a man after God's own heart. What about in the New Testament? John the Baptist, the greatest prophet, right, to come. What do we say about him? Man, he was the forerunner of Jesus. But look, he ended up one day in prison and sending a guy to ask Jesus, hey, are you the one? I just need to know. But we don't judge him like that. We don't call him doubting David or doubting John the Baptist or doubting fill in the blank. We don't do it. So look, here's what I want you to see. We're all in the boat of Thomas, but Thomas just gets a bad rap. In fact, Matthew, Matthew's gospel towards the end of Jesus's ministry on this earth. I want to show you this because this is a big point. He sends the disciples to the mountain. He's about to ascend to the Father. He's given his last message to them. He's appeared to them. He's appeared to hundreds of people. He's been on this earth almost 40 days. And then he's about to give the disciples the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, don't you have to turn there. We're going to end up in John 11. But I just want you to see this. It says this, Matthew 28, verse 16. It says, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. But when they saw him, they worshiped him. Which were like, yeah, they did. They just saw him. But look at the next line. But some doubted. But some doubted. You see, Thomas gets a bad rap in scripture. But I think Thomas, just like the other disciples, like we've said every single week, Thomas gives us a picture of an incredible life that I think that we can relate to. Do you know why? Because I think we've all been there. I think we've all been in moments of our lives where we have had doubts. In fact, listen to this. One author said it like this. I put it on the screens for you. He says this. He says, 90% of Christians have admitted to having an occasional doubt. And the other 10%, they're just lying. <laughs> it's so true, right? Why? Because we've all been there. We've all had moments of our lives to where we have doubted what we believe in. We've had moments where we've doubted what we stand for, where we're going. We've had these moments. They might not have been out loud because we're good church people, but we have had moments in our lives, these, these ideas in our lives were like, well, I'm just really not sure. So I want you to hear Thomas's message today because I think if Thomas were with us, 
And I think if Thomas were walking into this message based on how hard we've judged him over the last 2,000 years and based on the fact that he knows that you and me are in this same boat, I think, here's the principle of Thomas, I think Thomas would look at you and he would look at me and he would say this, never allow, never allow a season of doubt to limit your future walk with Jesus. I think this would be Thomas's message, and here's why. Because we have all been there. We've all had a season of our life to where we did not know which end was up. And I, and I use the word season here on purpose because season can mean a short, temporary moment or season can mean a long, long, maybe months, maybe years, maybe a decade moment. And some of you, that's your testimony. Some of your testimonies say, listen, I know that I came through the church. I was born in the church, but I had a long season of my life to where whether it was college or after or whatever, that there was just a season of darkness in me. There was a doubt in me. I didn't know which end was up. But for some of you, you're like, well, you know what? Mine is just kind of a little bit more secret than that. Maybe it's just every now and then. Maybe it was at the death of this person or the divorce of whoever in my life. Here's my prayer today. My prayer is that we can look at Thomas's life and we can look at his faith and we can look at the elements that built his faith and that we can relate to him and we can point in the same direction that his faith went in even though he did doubt. I wanna give you six kind of elements or six components this morning of Thomas's faith. And here's my challenge to you, is that you would take them and these would be seeds that you plant in your heart of how your faith can operate. I wanna show you the true Thomas. Number one, Thomas's faith, it was willing to sacrifice. Thomas's faith was absolutely willing to sacrifice. John chapter 11. John chapter 11 is the first place that we pick Thomas up in the Gospels. John chapter 11 is obviously, it's the story of Lazarus's death. Lazarus was an incredibly close friend to Jesus. So was Mary and Martha. Lazarus got sick. He continued to get sicker and they did the only thing that they knew what to do. So they called out to Jesus. They asked Jesus to come help, which seems like an incredibly good plan for all of us to do. We need the healer. We call out for the healer, but here was the problem. Lazarus and Mary and Martha, they lived in Bethany, which is basically kind of the barely outskirts of Jerusalem. And Jesus, just before this happened, had been run out of Jerusalem. He had been run out of Bethany or Judea, and now he has crossed over the Jordan. He is in the wilderness, and he's having what most scholars believe is one of the most fruitful times of Jesus's ministry life. Hundreds and hundreds of people, possibly thousands, are coming to know the Lord. He's healing people. We're seeing people come to know the Lord. And he has escaped the high priest. He's escaped the religious leaders that what John 10, 39 says, that were literally trying to kill him. They ran him out of the city. And we know it's not his time. But yet they call out to Jesus. And at this moment of incredible ministry, Jesus realizes what he needs to do. He needs to go back to Bethany and he needs to be with Lazarus. Check into the story. John 11 verse 6 says this. So when he, that's Jesus, heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. I love it. Hey, he's sick. Yeah, give it a minute. And then he said to his disciples, 
Let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you. And yet, you want to go back? Now, put your finger there, because I want you just to feel the power in this story. His disciples are like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. They literally just, they tried to kill you in this little spot. It's not like we're going to be able to hide going in, Jesus. They're going to kill you. What do we do? Verse 11, look at it. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, but our, Laz- our, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, <laughs> I love the disciples. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he's going to get better. Just let him sleep it off. Verse 13, Jesus had been speaking of death. But his disciples thought that he meant natural sleep. Verse 14, so then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Jesus is looking at him going, hey, I'm glad we weren't there because now I can raise him from the dead and maybe, just maybe, you will believe who I am. Listen to this. Listen, Jesus says this, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, verse 16, it's the first time we ever see Thomas speak, also known as Didymus, right, twin, twin, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Let us also go so we can just all die. Now look, I love this moment. You know why? Because Thomas is the only one that speaks in this moment. Now, on one side, it looks like Thomas is being a little bit snippy, right? It's being a little bit half glass full. It's being a little bit pessimistic. It's almost like he's kind of going, eh, all right, fold it up, boys. Let's go die. But I need you to see that's not what he says. That's not what Thomas says, but it's easy to read that. Thomas, in this moment, looks at Jesus, and he looks at Jesus and says, look, Jesus, if that's what we need to do, If we need to go back there and we're gonna die for you, then Jesus, then so be it. This is where I wanna be, I'm with you. I'll die for you, I'll sacrifice for you. Thomas looks at Jesus and goes, hey look, Jesus, I would rather be with you in death than away from you in a meaningless life. I would rather be with you in a moment of sacrifice, in a moment of victory, because I know that I'm gonna be with you in eternity than just be able to hold back and send you by yourself. I could just see Thomas going, well, okay, let's go. Let's go. So I just want you to feel this. On one hand, it looks like he's just being snippy, but on the other hand, I think we're seeing Thomas's devotion to how much he loved Jesus, how much he honored Jesus, how much he was willing to sacrifice for Jesus. Thomas was putting on display right here the exact same words that Jesus said in Mark 8. He, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Take up his death tool and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whomever loses his life for me and for the gospel, he says, will save it. So listen, this is an incredible moment of faith by doubting Thomas, right? This is incredible because he's looking at it going, I am willing to sacrifice everything for you, Jesus, which made me ask myself this question all week long. Here it is, and I want you to ask yourself, is my faith, is my faith a faith of willing sacrifice or is my faith just one of convenience? 
Is my faith a faith that no matter what Jesus says we're going to do, that, that I'm not worried about the consequences. I'm not trying to count a convenience moment. Is my faith knowing that there are moments in my walk with Jesus that are not going to be convenient, or am I just giving God the leftovers when everything else falls in place, when all the schedule works, the leftover scraps for God? Because ultimately, that's what he's saying. He's looking at him and going, hey, I'll die for you. Thomas's faith was willing to sacrifice, number one, but I also want you to see, number two, it was prepared to follow. It was prepared to follow Jesus, no matter where he went. You see, one thing that we notice about Thomas all through the Bible is that Thomas wanted to be with Jesus wherever he went. He didn't want to be apart from Jesus. He always wanted to be in lockstep with Jesus. And the reality is, this is the definition of what a disciple should be. It is a wondering follower. It is a learning follower. It is someone that says, Jesus, I will go with you. This is what we see in John chapter 14. It's the next time that we see Thomas. John 14 is Jesus, he's checking back in with the disciples and he's telling them, hey, listen guys, I know that we've been doing this thing together, I know that we've been walking together, I know that you've been learning from me, but there's coming a time where, it's very soon, where I'm gonna be handed over to the priests. I'm gonna be handed over to the authorities and I'm gonna be sacrificed for you and that I'm gonna die. And then Jesus looks at him and says, and hey, listen to this, you're going to die as well. Now, when we, when we read this statement, 2021, we're like, well, heck yeah, he is. He's gonna die. I need Jesus to die because that is the covering for my sin. But for these guys, this is a little bit different of a story for them. They've never had a moment of their faith that they hadn't walked with Jesus. They never had a time that they hadn't been with Jesus, hadn't heard from Jesus, hadn't enjoyed Jesus' fellowship. So when Jesus comes to these guys and said, hey, I'm about to leave you, that's an incredibly big deal. So Jesus breaks this news, and check this out, John, 1, John 14, verse 1. It says, do not let your hearts be troubled, Jesus says. You believe in God, Believe also in me. He says, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I prepare a place for you, I, Jesus says, I will come back and I will take you to be with me that you also may be where I'm going or where I am. Look at verse four. You know the way to where I'm going. And then look at verse five. I love Thomas. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. We don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Now pause there. We're gonna to get to that next verse. Pause there. Look at Thomas. Thomas is looking at Jesus. and He's like, Jesus, I want to know the way. How can I know the way? And look at Jesus' response. Jesus answered one of the most incredibly, incredibly foundational statements of the whole New Testament. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Except through me. Thomas basically looks at Jesus. Now this looks like an incredibly abrupt statement by Thomas. You're like, Thomas, just let it flow. Let it go. But Thomas, is, his heart is showing here. His heart of devotion, his heart of fellowship. He looks at Jesus in the face. He goes, look, Jesus, I just need you to be very clear right here. I need you to be very clear. I do not want a moment where I'm not with you. I don't want a moment I'm not walking with you. And Jesus, if you could just plainly give us the map, we're in, we are going with you. Now look, this is not a derogatory statement. 
This is not a loss of faith or loss of dedication statement. This is a clarity statement. This is a me looking at God going, God, I know you got plans for me. I know you got things in my life. I know you're calling me to do something, God. I just need you. God, I'm coming before you right now, and I need you to show me how I can follow you fully. That's what he said. Thomas said, look, I'm not doubting. I just need to know how to follow you, Jesus. Do you know what this made me ask myself this week? It made me ask myself, Am I willing to follow Jesus anywhere? Or does it have to fit into my little American Christianity mode? Am I willing to look at Jesus and go, I know you're calling me Jesus. And it doesn't even really matter where you're calling me. Doesn't matter how you're calling me. Doesn't matter what it's gonna cost me. I'm willing to follow you, Jesus. Just show me the way. Show me the way. Show me the way. I love Thomas's heart. I love it. Does my faith do this? Is my question to myself this week. And I need you asking yourself, does my faith do this or does my faith have to fit into the easy believism that we most of us have adopted? You know what easy believism is? A.W. Tozer is the one who coined that phrase. And here's this quote of easy believism. It says this, easy believism is where we say this, I want some of your blood for my forgiveness of my sins, Jesus. But I don't have any intention of following you or obeying you. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'd like to get on with my life. See, Thomas says, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm prepared to sacrifice my life, but I'll follow you anywhere. Just show me where to go. Just show me. But it doesn't stop there. I want you to see number three, that Thomas's faith was fully honest. It was a fully honest faith. Now, this was a little bit out there, but I want you to hang with me because here's what this means. You see, Thomas's faith was honest with himself. It was honest with himself on where he was with Jesus. It was honest. His heart was on display for Jesus. He was searching. You can read this in scripture. You can feel it. Thomas's heart was honest with his other disciples, with his friends, with those that are closest with him and with ministry happening around him. He was honest with his faith, but Thomas's faith was also honest with Jesus. It was incredibly honest with him just looking at Jesus. And if he didn't understand, something, he would just offer up an honest prayer, an honest conversation. Here's what Thomas did not do. Thomas did not fall into the crowd and was quiet when he didn't think that he needed to say anything. Thomas made sure that everything in his heart was authentic. It was authentic. And can I just beg us to find a way to have an authentic, honest faith with God, with Jesus, with others around us, and quit playing like we're all okay. And just quit playing like we've got everything all together. Everything is fine. Listen, Thomas's desire was for nothing to get him off the track of following Jesus, no matter what anybody else said in his life. He wasn't there to fit in. He wasn't there to blend into the crowd. He wasn't there to not make a disturbance, just live an easy life. No, John chapter 20 is the next place we catch up with Thomas. John chapter 20 is post death of Jesus. He's gone to the cross. He has died. And now Thomas and the other disciples are incredibly distraught. The, Thomas's worst nightmare has just happened, right? Jesus has just left him. Jesus has just died. And now he doesn't have any Jesus to follow. 
And Jesus is left without, he's left without Jesus, or Thomas is left without Jesus. So what happens here? In John chapter 20, the other disciples are upset as well. So 10 of the disciples end up in the upper rooms, probably the same room that Jesus was there uh, with them earlier. We're really not sure. And then all of a sudden, at this moment, Jesus shows himself to the disciples, shows them, shows them who he is and that he's fully alive. And they have all of their questions answered. But there's one problem in John chapter 20, verse 24. And check out what the problem is. Verse 24 says, now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Now I want, you to, I want you to feel what's going on here. All the disciples, 10 of them were there. Judas is gone. Thomas is not with them. To which leads my inquisitive self to say, why is Thomas not there? Why is Thomas? And here's what I've been taught over the years, and I'm glad I'm breaking free from this. We don't know why Thomas wasn't there. Maybe he didn't get the email. Maybe the text didn't go through. He didn't check the bulletin board of disciples. We really don't know. So before, listen to me, before you get down on Thomas already, it is possible. Here's where I stand in this, and this is just me. It is possible that Thomas's heart that we have seen on these first two elements of his faith is so destroyed that he just didn't want to be around people. He didn't know that it was going on. He felt crushed and destroyed. He didn't have an idea. He was devastated. And I think that this is less about Thomas not having enough faith to go to church. That's why you don't miss church. You miss Jesus. We've all heard it, right? All the time. I think it is less about him not being in the room and more just about the honesty of his hurt. Because we see this in his life. And let me say this, and I'm gonna keep moving, because I know this is just kind of me talking and not Bible, and I don't want this to be. I think this shows us something right here. And I think it shows us that sometimes it's okay not to be okay. I think it shows us that sometimes it's okay to be able to just go, look, I'm hurting and I'm destroyed, and I'm needing a moment, and I just need to be honest before God, before others, before everybody that I am hurting. It's okay to not be okay, church. And I know, we, I know that we're not good at this. Why? Because we're American Christians. We're in the South, right? We gotta have it all together. Our lives has gotta be on track. I mean, we gotta be Graham, Instagram worthy of every moment of our lives right now, right? I mean, all of it, but it's okay not to be okay. To be honest with God. Why? Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, what did Jesus tell us? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Love. Possibly, we're just seeing the authenticness of his faith. But, but not only that, we also see that Thomas's faith, check this out, it was supported by evidence. It was supported by evidence. And I want you to feel this because here's what happened in Thomas in the story. Stay with the John 20 story. Thomas's faith was backed up. Look at verse 25. So the other disciples told Thomas, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, well, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and I put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. So the disciples, they see Jesus. They get a glimpse of Jesus. All of their questions are answered in this moment, but Thomas is not there. So they go, let's find Thomas. Let's tell Thomas what's going on. They go to Thomas and they're like, hey, listen, you're, you, you need to know this. He's alive. And Thomas is like, nope, not till I see it. Not till I experience it. 
to which good Christians like me would probably get down on Thomas right here. But hang on a minute. I need you to see something. Don't get down on Thomas. Was he doubting? Yes. But I think he was doubting more of the, uh, more of the evidence that they were giving him more than the evidence that he was looking for in Jesus. Did, did you know that no one in this group believed until Jesus showed up in front of them? Have you ever realized this? I mean, think about the story just for a minute of the resurrection. Mary goes to the tomb, right? She sees that Jesus is not there. She accuses everybody around her of stealing the body. Where is Jesus? Jesus is not here. Even the angels appear to Mary. She leaves the angels, looks at the poor gardener, and she still asks the gardener, where did you put him? And then Jesus is like, Mary, come on. It's me, right? What about John? I mean, what about, what about John and Peter going to the tomb? They both look into the tomb. Poor John gets there before Peter. He won't even go in because he's so confused of what's going on. Verse nine in, in Luke 20 tells us that they don't know what's happening until what happens? Jesus shows up to them later. I mean, think about all of the disciples. They're in this upper room. They don't know what's going on. They're just there to meet. And until Jesus shows up in front of them, they don't know what's happening. In fact, Mark chapter 16, verse 10, in Mark's account, Mary goes to the disciples and look what she says. She went and told those who had been with Jesus who were mourning and weeping. And when they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen them, they did not believe. They didn't believe. So look, we're all down on Thomas right here, but nobody believed until they got the evidence. Here's, here's what I want you to hear. There's plenty of evidence. There's plenty. Look at what happens. Verse 25, but he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hands in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And listen, Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came, stood among them and said, peace be with you. You gotta say peace when you come through a wall. It's just how it works. Verse 27, then Thomas, then, then Jesus said to Thomas, check this out, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. I want you to see something here. I want you to see that who initiates this contact? Jesus does. Did Thomas ask Jesus a question? No. Did Thomas go to Jesus and go, Jesus, I just need to talk to you? No. Did, did, how is this happening? It's the same way it happens with you. You see, Jesus knows in our hearts when we are struggling and he perceives our needs. And what does Jesus do through the Holy Spirit in our life? He gives us the evidence that we need. He gives us himself. Listen, Jesus initiates this conversation and we have a big enough God to handle your questions. We have a big enough God to handle your requests before him. In fact, what did we just see? We just saw that Jesus hears our questions. The resurrected Jesus, the glorified Jesus, he knows when you're struggling and he wants you to have the evidence that you need. He wants you to have it. We have it now. We have the complete canon of scripture. We have the years of living out of their lives of Christians and we have the words of God. He gets the proof he needs. And I want you to see what happens next. Verse 28, Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. 
Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. And blessed are those who, ha- who have not seen me, yet believe. That's us. We haven't seen him, but we believe. Jesus is blessing us right here. But I want you to see Thomas's faith step number five. is that he was incredibly theologically mature. He was theologically mature. Let me tell you why. Verse 28 in order, in verse 28 by most scholars is seen as the number one greatest statement of faith by any apostle. By any apostle. You say, Matt, what are you talking about? Look at it again. John 20, 28, Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Now, don't get lost in first century Palestine because we say this all the time. But listen to what Thomas said. Thomas said, I will bow to you. I will follow you. I will be yours. I am yours. Jesus, you are my savior. You are my Messiah. You are my king. But then he steps over too and he says something that has never been said in the New Testament before. He calls Jesus God. He calls him God. Now, Jesus has alluded to it. Now, don't get lost in the depth of this, please. Jesus has alluded to it. But nobody else in the scripture has put the two together in a more emphatic statement that yes, Jesus is Lord, but yes, Jesus is God. In fact, if the Jews would have heard this, they would have absolutely killed him on the spot. Why? Because we see right here the deity of Jesus. That he wasn't just a guy who walked on this earth. You're seeing how mature Thomas was, right? Was he a doubting Thomas? Well, he had a moment, right? but we're seeing a guy who fully understands who Jesus is. That's what our faith is about. It's about fully understanding, getting evidence, asking questions, following Jesus. But then I want you to see what happens next because this changes everything. And number six is Thomas's faith was spread to others. It was spread to others. Say, Matt, what are you talking about? I just want you to see this. Jesus has risen. He meets Thomas, Thomas submits his life to him. There is no more doubting. In fact, church tradition tells us that Thomas moved from there to ancient Babylon, which is kind of Iraq today. Then he moved on over to what is now present day Iran. And in 52 AD, Thomas sails to India. He sails to India and he plants some churches in India and reaches the Brahmin people. Now, if you remember from history, maybe, maybe not, the Brahmin people are the highest caste of the Indian society. Thomas plants these churches on the, on the west coast of India, reaches these people, preaches there for 20 years to about 70 AD, and then he moves over to the eastern coast of India and plants another couple churches to where eventually he is martyred for his faith, thrown into a pit, a spear is driven through his chest. But here's what I want you to see. I want you to know that because Thomas reached the highest class of Brahmins, you can actually today go to India and trace the lineage of at least five churches on paper directly to the Apostle Thomas, directly to him. Now, let me just flip the whole script here and say this. While we may see him as a doubting Thomas, I can see him as a man who's looking at me and looking at you going, hey, never let a moment of doubt limit your future walk with Jesus. Here's the deal. We all doubt, but what are we seeing in Thomas's life? 
We're seeing he was willing to sacrifice. He was prepared to follow. He was fully honest about who he was. He had the evidence that he needed to move. He was incredibly theologically mature. And eventually his faith began to move into a whole region of the world to which 2,000 years later, we can still celebrate. So here's my question to you this morning. Where is your faith today? Is your faith at a point in your life to where you're looking at Jesus honestly going, I just need you to move in my heart. Are you still just hanging out in the surface level level American consumeristic Christianity? Lord, today, Lord, I just pray that in these next moments, Lord Jesus, that we can have a moment for you to show us who you are. Lord, Thomas's life shows us that our only job is to be fully devoted to who you are, Lord Jesus. God, I'm praying right now for the people that are hearing me speak that they need to give their heart and life to Jesus today. That they've never made a decision for you to cover their sins, to to invite you into their lives, that God, today would be a day that they would say, I need you, Jesus. God, I'm praying for the people today that are just absolutely just consumers of the faith and not walkers of the faith. I pray today that you would show them, Lord, that that we're here to represent you as a disciple-making disciple. Lord, I pray for people who are trying to decide right now to take that next step of baptism or to take that next step of joining us here at Burn Hickory as part of the family, stepping in and becoming a member of this church. God, would you just move in these next couple of minutes and show us what our next step needs to be, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Let's stand sing. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. Were you inspired? Maybe you've got questions. Do you want to know more about Jesus? Then we'd love to hear from and connect with you. So take the next step with us by visiting burnthickory.com next. Again, thanks for listening. And hey, stay tuned by subscribing and stay up to date by downloading the Burnt Hickory app.